unless we have a better value addition available for the product owner or business, these discussions will not go in the right direction. If we have the right value addition available to them, we still would have healthy conversations. We still may have differences of opinion, but they'll be all driven by a common goal to get the organization better. Hey, Katen, welcome to the Get in the Mode podcast. Hey, David, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Lovely. So let's talk about, for the benefit of our viewers, I know we've had one other guest from Berkadia. So you're our second guest. Eric was our previous guest. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, you guys should definitely check out Eric's interview. That was amazing. We had a great conversation on digital transformation on and all of the partnership-related topics. Uh, so I recommend you to check it out. But Caden, why don't we start by, you know, kind of talking about Berkadia. What is Berkadia all about? Uh, your understanding of it. Certainly. So uh, Berkadia, as you might be aware, and, and then your viewers might be aware as well, is uh, engaged in the business of commercial real estate. Now, of course, the question is, okay, what all do we do in commercial real estate? Uh, so commercial real estate, by the way, relates to all kinds of commercial. So there are uh, multifamily housing, the, the apartment complexes that we have in the U.S., or there could be healthcare-related real estate like hospitals or hospitality-related, so hotels and stuff like that, or commercial complexes, malls, shops, offices, all of these, essentially any real estate that could be acquired and then let out or rented is what qualifies. And all of these are different categories of commercial real estate. Uh, we focus on a couple of those categories, not all of them. And we do three things there. The first thing is we help owners of uh, commercial real estate sell their property. So whenever they want to sell their property, we help them uh, sell the property. Uh, we also help buyers of commercial real estate for mortgage purposes. And while we're talking about mortgage, we also actually help existing owners to refinance their real estate as and when there's a need. So those are kind of two services. One is helping the sale. Second is helping mortgage. And third is we also help both the borrower and the lender service the loan. Because both have, both have an interest that the loan gets serviced regularly. And uh, that ensures, from a lender's perspective, it ensures compliance to the lending terms and conditions and the returns and the repayments, all of that. From a bar, from borrower's perspective, it also ensures, again, compliance. It avoids them getting into any non-compliance-related clauses and stuff like that. So kind of creates a win-win situation for the borrower, for the lender, and, of course, uh, a business opportunity for Mercadia as well. Now, I'm just going to say one more last thing. Quite often, we also have what we call as a round trip. So we help a seller, an owner, sell the property. The buyer, we help the buyer get mortgaged. And then we also have the buyer and the lender who has given the loan to service the same loan. So we kind of complete the full circle on the same property. Yeah, that's a great overview, uh, Caden. Thank you for that, for Bricadia's services. I, I think Eric kind of talked about similar stuff. He got into more of the product side of the house, but I'm glad we got to kind of at a high level here. What really, we talk about Arcadia being a CRE company, but what really goes into it, right? So the, those set of services was uh, very enlightening. 
Uh, now, let's talk about you. Give us a little bit about your background, uh, what brought you to Berkadia, perhaps kind of introduce yourself to our uh, listeners. Sure. Before I came to Berkadia, I worked for uh, quite a few great organizations and I learned a lot over there. So I thank those organizations as well. I, I was with Microsoft uh, twice in two different stints, uh, both the times working for the office division there. Between those two stints, uh, I led a pretty large operation for SunGuard Financial Services, which was then SunGuard, now it's part of FIS. And after the second stint of Microsoft, I was the global CIO for uh, core banking, microservices, and APIs at, at HSBC. So it was a very big and global role. What attracted me to Berkadia are three things. Uh, one is Berkadia has a disruptive technology vision uh, that is not just the separate Berkadia, but the story for the entire ecosystem of commercial real estate. So we work very closely with the GSEs uh, and quite a few other partner companies as to how do we disrupt the overall commercial real estate sector uh, leveraging technology. So the vision is very compelling, which means there's a lot of good stuff to be done here. The second is Berkadia's value system and what we call as the Berkadia way. Probably some other day I can dive into more details of that. But it's a very unique philosophy of how do we constantly look outward and look at things outside in and inside out rather than just constantly looking inward. So that's a very unique philosophy that attracted me to, attracted me to Berkadia. And the third, of course, is the role. There's a technology disruption happening and there's a technology role of leadership. So all of these three combinations were a good compelling reason for me to uh, that's awesome you know i do have some role related questions but before i jump into that something that kind of in your response is you know kind of definitely leading me to ask this question okay so bracadia way i know you kind of said you wanted to touch upon that later but i really want to let's kind of understand what that is about Sure. Well, the reason I said that was that we can probably spend a few hours on that. But anyway, I'll, I'll try to cover it as much of a concise way as I can. So there are various concepts and tools. Essentially, the idea, it is, it is the foundation of Berkidia Way is on the concepts, uh, two basic concepts. One is self-awareness. So being aware of oneself as an individual, as a person, as a human being, less as a role, and second foundation is empathy. So let us say if you and I are colleagues and you are leading some part of the technology organization, I'm leading some other part of the technology organization, obviously we have to collaborate, our teams have to collaborate. And as we do that, we obviously have different ideas, different thoughts, different approaches, mm -hmm. different what's and how's of doing things, all of that. And those are the root causes of difference of opinion sometimes disconnect, which can eventually lead to lack of collaboration, all that. But if we are self-aware that my doing this, how it would affect you both positively and or negatively. Right. So higher the level of self-awareness, I'll be that much more open with you. I'll yeah. be less guarded. And higher the level of empathy for you as my collaborator, as my partner, uh, I would say that, well, uh, David is wanting to achieve these objectives. These are my objectives. That basically promotes a very open conversation without any hidden agendas. Mm. And that results into very healthy discussion, debate, 
And yeah. also at times we do have, con- it's not we don't have conflicts, we do have conflicts, but we have a good foundation to resolve those within, within a very open mind, open conversation. That's the foundation. Now, as a part of the whole philosophy, we have multiple tools that have been evolved over a period of time. Sure. Uh, we sure. use them uh, depending on the situation. We also have coaching available. So let us say there are a couple of team members who need that, uh, what we call as Berkadia Way sessions. So they are working together, but they're not getting along very well. That outward mindset is not there. That empathy is not there. And someone like me or from leadership team would have a Berkadia Way session where we would be largely bystanders like coaches, but enable them to apply some of the Berkadia Way tools and resolve the issue at hand. Yeah. The best part about Berkadia, and that's the last comment I would make for now, is that what impressed me the most, most of the organizations have something or the other which is uh, similar or different, but to basically ensure that the teams are able to work effectively together. But quite often, the implementation of that entire philosophy is delegated to HR or training and development and those kinds of uh, functions. Mm-hmm. At the most, uh, the second line of lead- leadership. At Berkadia, the first training of Berkadia we given to every new joiner is given by one of our managing committee leaders. So it's like the top line getting engaged in it themselves. So that shows the commitment of the company that, well, the leadership is not going to just preach about it, mm-hmm. practice it, and actually contribute to it themselves. So that's in brief about Berkadia Way. Now I understand why you said maybe that's a separate session for itself. Like, I, I definitely want to do that sometime. We'll, we'll definitely book a time for that. But it's great how you how you guys have a system or a stack in place that's you know, self-awareness with empathy, because, you know, granted, we all serve our self-interest. We all come to the table with a little bit of what we want in the bargain, right? And how do you, you know, share that honestly and candidly in a manner that, okay, just like you said, like, what does, what is David's point of view and what's his interest in this, which is what is actually putting yourself in, in my shoes to have that empathy. And honestly, I think it leads to trust, right? I mean, the, the, the end result is, you know, now I trust you, Caden, I'm going to be more open to collaboration. I'm not going to be guarded. Like, I think a lot of times, even in technology, we see these uh, silos, right? The silos is a cultural phenomenon, as much as a technological one, right? Yes, more so cultural, I completely agree with you there. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for that. So I, I think that's a, that's a great one. Uh, now let's kind of dive into some of some role questions I have for you. I, I you know you're the CTO at Barcadia. You guys also have a general manager who's kind of reading uh, leading the product division, and then you also, which is Eric, and then you also have a chief data officer, another CIO role. Let's. You know, our most of our listeners are CIOs. You know, what I'd like to understand from you is sort of like, how does the CIO-CTO collaboration take place? You know, what, is, what are, you know, at least at Berkadia, you know, using Berkadia as an example, and you've also been a global CIO in the past. I'm curious, since you've played both those roles, curious to hear your understanding of how the collaboration works typically and how it should work? Perhaps there's two parts to that question. Sure. And before I get to the two questions, I would like to just take a step back and uh, provide some context. 
I have had the fortune of being with this industry for more than 30 years. And as a result, I have seen this industry grow from the punch card mainframe systems, which many people might never have seen, to what it is today in terms of uh, cloud and devices and smartphones and all that. If we go back in time about 15, 20 years ago, when the CIO title and the role evolved, it essentially included everything that happened in the technology area. So it would include uh, purchase of hardware through networking, through data management, uh, data security, all of that. And then, of course, software for sure. I mean, buying software, building software, uh, implementing various tools and technologies within the organization, right from MS Office to whatnot. As industry has grown over a period of time, a lot of functions that were kind of all merging into the CIO role have themselves grown. And the CIO role itself also has grown substantially. So typically I look at this maturity into or can define or categorize that into five stages. Uh, the first stage of IT was playing a support role. You want me to print an invoice, I'll print an invoice kind of thing, very support role. It then matured into being an enabler. So your technology enabled to business process and not just printing some invoices and stuff like that. Right. From enabler, the function then graduated into becoming a strategic partner that, well, now I actually want to understand what the business is going to achieve and I'll build technology accordingly. From there, it evolved to becoming a business driver. So now technology is no longer just a partner enabler, but actually we are thinking of models. And at Berkeley, we are at that stage in many areas, not all, but in some areas, we are at that stage where we're trying to say as to how can, what can we do in technology such that it actually can bring more business to Berkeley? Okay. So that's kind of the fourth stage of evolution. The fifth stage, which is where our vision is, is how can technology be a disruptor of the ecosystem? Now, if you look at the CIO role as well, with these five stages, depending on what stage a company is, the CIO role would be that much more close to business vis-a-vis just looking after the network and the computers, uh, say, 20 years ago, yeah. right? Yeah. So that is, and therefore, a lot of functions that were managed by the managers or VPs in those days under the CIO have themselves become C-level functions today. So technology is a C-level function with a CTO. Digital is a C-level function with a CDO. Uh, data is another C-level function called CDO. Security becomes another C-level function called CISO and so on and so forth. So because the, the growth in the technology sector has been and the maturity has been that, that much and that fast. Now coming to your question in terms of how the collaboration should exist. So usually, whatever I've seen so far, that's what's happening in Berkeley as well. The, the kind of close to the ideal state is the overall vision of technology is uh, always led by the CIO uh, as to how can technology be either a strategic partner or a business driver or uh, a, a technology or a technical disruptor in the ecosystem. I think most of the companies are in those three stages. I don't think anybody would be just at an enabler stage in today's world. So accordingly, the vision has to be owned by the CIO who says that, well, this is what I want technology and all things related to technology to accomplish over the next three to five years. The CTO has to be kind of the right-hand partner, if I may call it. And nowadays, I would say security data, all of them have to be, so maybe the CIOs have multiple right-hand partners. Sure. 
in a sense that how do we stack up all of technology, whether it relates to tools that we procure or tools that we build uh, or software and even the stack that we use ourselves. So we build software, let us say, Berkeria builds software on a stack called Neem. So we do a lot of work on Node.js and, and Angular and stuff like that. That stack is, again, a CTO responsibility to ensure that the stack... So if I was, as a CTO, let us say, want to develop software on .NET version 1.5, uh, that means I'm actually being retrograde in my role. I'm taking the company backwards and forward, right? So that way, I have to lay the technology foundations, the technology strategy for the organization that is aligned and supports the uh, innovation vision for Bracaria. You know, great point about the stages, enabler all the way to disruptor. I'm curious, any recommendations on, let's say a company is saying, hey, we're at the enabler stage and we're wanting to move to the business driver stage. At what stage does each of these C-level get involved? Or at least, you know, kind of from a forecast standpoint, when do you bring in each of these uh, roles? Yeah. So um, good, good, very good question, David. I would say that before one gets into, so one is a company can have all the titles because that's a different thing altogether. It's more of a structural thing. Uh, the second is actually having that maturity of roles and the need for that. It might be the first step towards that would be to have some kind of a self-assessment introspection, nothing more. You don't need an external assessment or anything, but it's just that, where are we? Are we an enabler? Are we a business partner? Are we a business driver? Are we an ecosystem disruptor? Depending on that, so typically the top three stages, so basically if you are a strategic partner in technology or if you are a business driver or if you are an ecosystem disruptor, then these roles uh, have a very important role to play. They have a very important uh, contribution to make. Mm -hmm. Typically, in the first two stages, we're just a supporter enabler. There may not be much need of, because in those stages, you're mostly using bought-out technology. There's not much being built right. in-house. Mm -hmm. So there's not too much of technology stack going on. Typically, the data is handled by external systems or Security is also kind of guaranteed by the external systems that are being used. But when it comes to a business partner or business driver or strategic partner, as I said, yeah. these roles definitely come into play to start building the foundations of the organization. Gotcha. Now, let's talk about the CDO role in this, right? Companies are playing, I mean, really realizing this value in operationalizing data. AI is a you know, becoming a more of a business driver and perhaps even a disruptor at some point. How does a company realize that they've got enough data to bring in perhaps even a data architect or a data officer? Again, a very good insightful question, I would say, in the sense that if a company is handling or managing one high volume of data, second, the nature of data. So, if that high volume of data consists of a lot of PII, for instance, or if we are also procuring, because nowadays we also are able to procure data from third parties that are useful for our business. There's a lot of data providers, right? And when we have those data providers giving or selling us data, we have to honor those contractual terms and conditions as well. 
Similarly, we have customers that feed their data into our software, into our systems that resides in our systems. And again, there are contractual commitments we make to those customers in terms of for what purposes we can use the data and for what purposes we cannot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So whenever any organization's requirements encompass one or more of these key factors, Mm -hmm. it's high time they look out for a data architect. And depending on the scale, uh, if the scale is big, then definitely there's a need for a CDO as well. Got it. And that's the case in Mercadia. We, we actually tick in all of those boxes. We handle a lot of data. We have a lot of PII. We procure data. We have contractual commitments for data providers and our customers. And hence, we have a very independent and unique data function led by a CDO. That's awesome. Now, let's talk a little bit about the CTO role. What of the, in your previous response, you had mentioned you know, the sort of the building of the tech stack, right? And being responsible and accountable for that, right? You know, are you bringing in certain programming languages and frameworks that are kind of focused on the industry, future focused? What can we do with disruption? And perhaps even, you know, the software libraries that are part of the ecosystem for the organization or the enterprise, right? My question there is, is the CTO also responsible to help with the CIO in sort of like we we talk about buy versus build decisions, right? You know, when you talk about frameworks such as Node and Angular, you're talking about build, right? More of a build function. Is CTO more a build function or can it also be a buy function? If so, if you say both, I'd like to know what's the role in the buy function. Correct. That's a very, very good question. I, I would say one of my favorite topics for discussion as well, honestly. The reason I say it's my favorite is that there are a lot of conversations historically in the tech sector that have happened in what I typically refer to, and probably one day I should patent this whole concept, that it is uh, what I call is the or paradigm. So if you look at, go back 20 years again, project management, the PMP certification, the PMBOK and all that, it used to say that there are four or five constraints depending on what level you are at. Right. So you have scope, you have quality, you have schedule, you have cost. Typically those four, eventually they, got, they added security as well. And normally the, the, the recommendation was that one or two of those five constraints should not be a constraint for a project to be successful. So I call that as an or paradigm. So you can either have any three of those five, you can't have all the five. (laughs) And then I refer to what I call as the iPhone moment. So before the iPhone came in, we had a computer, uh, we had a phone, uh, we had a browser on our computer. Uh, We of course had some music devices as well, like an iPod or whatever, but we had different devices to do different things. Right. Uh, We had a projector for viewing videos and stuff like that. Suddenly, this iPhone moment happened when you got everything into one device. And I call that as a transition from the or paradigm to the and paradigm. Okay. So the world from there on, last 15 years, has been constantly moving away from the or paradigm or the versus paradigm to what I refer to as the and paradigm. So if today I were to tell somebody, any of my stakeholders, look, either I can give you a quality software or I can give you a software on time. Right. Is that going to be an acceptable or paradigm anymore? Right. And never. I mean, they'll laugh at me. 
just assume it, <laughs> rightly so. That you can't, it's, it's, and look, I want it fast and I want good quality as well. And what kind yeah. of question is this? The response I'll get. That is the paradigm we have applied multiple such questions at Berkeria as well. Mm. And I'm happy that I brought that thought process here. So we don't see it as buy versus build. We always see these kinds of questions as buy and build. Okay. Mm. Uh, we, look at, we don't look at open source versus licensed software. We say open source and license. Because again, if you look at buy, it is procuring. We can procure open source. We can procure uh, licensed as well. The focus of all of this discussion has to be driven by business needs, business value, core competencies that the organization has and wants to build, the total cost of ownership of technology function, and the ROI from our investments. These have to be the drivers of these kinds of discussions and decisions, Mm. and not what was 10, 15 years ago that, well, my favorite is Java, and your favorite is basic, and therefore that is a stack we introduce, right? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. When we do a buy and build discussion at Berkeria, we say that, okay, what are the core competencies that we want to develop? And we can. So let's take uh, a scenario here, a real scenario. Yeah. Workflow solutions are a backbone of many organizations today. Sure. Including the work we do at Berkeria. There is a thought process that an organization should build its own workflow. Now, if I were to build, if Berkeria were to build its own workflow, will I have the competencies? Mm-hmm. I don't. Can I even build them? Would a workflow specialist, somebody in workflow architecture for 20 years, would he or she want to join Berkeria mm-hmm. versus joining a Pega or the workflow, the, the mm-hmm. multi-million dollar workflow companies, yeah. right? Yeah. They would have much more career opportunities there than, than here. And the last thing is, do I really want to reinvent the wheel and play a catch-up game? There's the companies out there that are making tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue from workflow solutions. Berkeria is not a workflow. We are in real estate business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have to build solutions that are real estate specific. We have to buy things that are common commodity software and buy again, depending on the TCO and ROI, we may go for open source. We may go for licensed. So that's the kind of model that we have adopted here. That's something that I've been working on for the last eight, 10 years. And in most of the organizations, this, the, the, the AND paradigm has got the required uh, traction and attention. That, that's the right way of thinking today. You know, Caden, you, you mentioned patenting. You should write a, a book on this. It's such a challenge for a lot of CIOs and CTOs that we talk to uh, here in the podcast. And yeah, it, you've addressed that very nicely. And thanks for sharing that. Now, let's dive in one step further in that paradigm, right? So in terms of, you mentioned TCO, total cost of ownership, right? How do you even get into sort of like predicting somewhat? Like, you know, when you are, let's say you go on this build route, let's say, you know, something that is related to your real estate operations and you feel like, the data and you know the people that the talent that you should you should have in house requires it to be built right in house but my question is as a cto when you kind of look at the balance sheet and the you know kind of budgeting for all of this right how do you there, there's going to be a you know maintenance 
continued improvement, continued continued innovation, I should also say, right? All adds up to that TCO. How, how do you navigate that as a, as a CTO? Perhaps let's let's start there. So uh, there are multiple models. For instance, one model uh, that I heavily use in my past life is uh, ratio of uh, change versus sustain. So if I have $100, I'll probably reserve $30 or four, depending on, again, the landscape of the organization, the technology stack, there are so many factors that go into it. But I reserve a certain portion of that budget for uh, sustaining operations, uh, which is maintenance and uh, some continuous improvement or adding features and all that. Do you have and, a percentage value for that? Like typical, what could be the guidance? Yeah, it would vary. Uh, it would be, I, I can probably share some factors that one could consider for uh, determining that, but it would definitely vary uh, substantially. So if an organization has a massive legacy stack, and by legacy, I mean any technology which was implemented on or before 2010, so anything that's more than 10 years old, uh, that has a huge influence on how much budget you need to maintain for, for reserve for sustaining versus creating new stuff. And I would say almost one thumb rule. And again, this is not be applied without any other factors to be considered because there are many other factors to be considered as well. But one thumb rule could be that the percentage of legacy software in the overall scheme of things is the percentage of budget one could reserve for maintenance. Mm. Just a thumb rule. Yeah, yeah. However, there's a catch in that. There's a trap in that thumb rule as well, which is if you keep doing that, you're going to keep expanding your legacy continuously because you're pouring more money into legacy. That's right. So therefore, that, that, brings, that brings in the second very important factor to be considered when you determine the percentage as to where do you want to go from here, three years, five years down the road. Yeah. You want to move away from it then start throttling your maintenance budget which is what I did at one of my past organizations where I throttled it from almost like 50% to 25, like a half, right. literally. Mm-hmm. Nothing more than this for maintenance because I want a lot of stuff to be done in the new world. Right. So strategy for future, the current stack, the competencies we have, if there are, for instance, an organization could have a very rare software, like in one of my past organizations, we had small talk implemented. <laughs> right now, that's a really rare skill you can't say no to the investment because otherwise uh, it is implement some of the key areas or I'll talk about Lotus Notes, another right. very popular, but very old stack. So some of those things also play a role. So stack, uniqueness, yeah. competency, future strategy, some of the factors one should consider to determine as to whether the ratio should be as low as like maybe 10% yeah. or maybe as high as 60%. That's the range I have seen uh, in my life so far. So you talked about legacy, right? If there's, you know, let's say if the legacy is kind of associated with maintenance and, you know, sustenance cost, if that gets bigger and bigger, uh, you're probably, can we say that you're accruing technical debt at that point? Well, I would, I would make it more severe. You're on death march. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah. So what's the kind of like you sounded like you almost kind of advocate 25% technical debt kind of that's the max you should is that fair the to lower say the that? better I, I wouldn't want to put a number honestly but the lower the better yeah and anything more than 30% uh, I would definitely question the strategy of the organization as to right. if you're reserving one thirty percent for maintenance 
there's a very good chance you probably won't be making as much of disruption as needed. Yeah. No, you know, this is a topic that comes up like why we, is it the cost of doing business like COTS, you know, or is it, why do we call it debt? I mean, since you're articulating all these concepts so well, I, I, I want to hear from you, you know, to, from a, if you were to, as a CTO, talk to a CEO and say, hey, this is becoming a technical debt and it's a debt category. How, how, do, you, how do you articulate that to a CEO or a CIO? So a uh, very good question again. That, that brings probably another thought to my mind, what we do is the two things. One is what I would call as the recurring maintenance requirement. Every year you have to spend X number of dollars to maintain your existing assets. Then at least in two of the four organizations that I've worked in the last 15 years, I have also come up with in both organizations, I've been very lucky to get the support from the CEO and the board to have a special limited time budget carved out in addition to the regular annual budget for what one could call as a technology transformation or a de-risking. There are different names we use in different organizations. The idea was, look, I want to overhaul in one shot over the next two years from where we are to where we want to be. It has to be a time-bound thing. And every quarter, there used to be a review as to, well, are we really making progress or not? And as a result, we because in one of those organizations, as I said, I inherited a 60% reservation for sustenance mm. and only 40% wow. for new development. And I said, well, this is going to only take us backwards. It definitely doesn't take us forward. 60% becomes 30% two years down the road, 80% other two years down the road. So we're in the wrong, wrong direction there. So I wanted to make a direction shift yeah. And I asked for the budget. I said, look, I want to bring it down from 60 to 30. Right. And I, I promise I'll do it over a two-year period. I'll give you quarterly milestones, and we'll make sure we achieve those milestones. I was fortunate in two ways. I was fortunate that my higher-ups gave me the resources and budget I needed. I was also very fortunate in getting the teams that were able to deliver. So within two years, we actually did get it down to below 30%. So that is a different strategy where you, you cannot make do with your annual budget. You have to think of something different. And that also works. And most organizations have seen that the boards and the CEOs are pragmatic when they see that, look, you're actually going downhill with the technology you have. You want to make an upfront one-time investment to bring it up back to, on, on track. Right. And then, of course, you can keep going uh, with that kind of uh, sustenance going forward, you know. Yeah, and it also goes back to your maturity model that you were talking about from support to enabler to driver, right? You want to go in that direction, not just remain in support and being an enabler, right? Spot on, um, spot on. Yeah. And in now, all scenarios, one thing I want to call out is that in all scenarios, for those last three, the top three stages, which is the strategic partner, business driver, and ecosystem disruptor, CIO's role has to be ROI-driven and not technology for the sake of technology. I mean, if you're thinking, or even the CTO for that, if I'm thinking that, well, I do this technology because it's the latest cool thing, I'm not in those three stages. I'm probably in the enabler or the support state, but I'm just wanting something as a toy, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Now, you know, one of the struggles that I've seen in organizations that I've worked with is, the decommissioning part, you, you talked a little bit about de-risking there. So I'm, I'm, I'm equating that a little bit to decommission, you know, of legacy. There's always 
you know, like a product officer or a product owner coming in and saying like, hey, we need this supported because we're losing, you know, a couple of millions of millions of dollars on this, on the revenue, because we're not able to support this in the legacy. And, you know, sometimes you may say, hey, that doesn't, you know, this might be a quarterly milestone effort and it doesn't justify the budget for that effort, right? So how do you navigate that as a CTO? Like, you know, what are some, you know, you talked about empathy and uh, self-awareness. So from that perspective, how do you approach that conversation? Well, first of all, I must appreciate the way you are diving deep into the questions. You, you are asking some really, really good technical questions, Jan. Thanks for that. One is, so there are again two parts to it. One is that there's another kind of concept called golden nugget I learned in my past life from one of my mentors is usually we say the voice of customer. Uh, this mentor taught me that don't just look at voice of customer, look at voice of customer's customer. Mm. So go one step beyond because that will give you strategic insights into what the customer would need to feed the, in, the requirements of their customers. Got it. Very valuable input. And that is something that I've held close to my heart in many of these kinds of scenarios that you're talking about. So here, when a business user or a product owner comes and tells me about technology, if I have something better or superior to offer, unless I have that, for me to start talking about or thinking about deprecating an existing product or an existing solution is not going to land me anywhere. That's where the empathy thing marries this concept of customer's customer, that I need to see what they are trying to accomplish. If I can give them a better solution than that, Right. So, hey, this is what you can get, but then we have to eventually, once you get this, you should be letting go of this one because we demise that. That scenario usually works. And I'll admit, despite knowing all these concepts, I have made mistakes where I have gone ahead and tried to sell some concept and the business or the product would get very heavily annoyed and they oh, this is all dreamy stuff. Just let us stay focused on what we have. And after a couple of months, I'll realize, oh my God, I made a mistake. You know, So, Unless we have a better value addition available for the product owner or business, these discussions will not go in the right direction. If we have the right value addition available to them, we still would have healthy conversations. We still may have differences of opinion, but they'll be all driven by a common goal to get the organization better. That is the foundation point that I try to seek common ground on and then move forward with the business as well as product people. Got it. Makes sense. So you're a guy, I feel like we could have a two hour, three hour conversation and we'll have lots to talk about. So you definitely have to come back to our show. I have more questions to ask in my notes, but uh, I'm going to punctuate it here and get into our uh, rapid fire questions. Certainly. Yes, certainly. Absolutely. Now let's start this. So this is going to be fun. Let's. You shared with us that uh, you you were on a vacation to the Grand Canyon. Tell us the highlight of your vacation. Something that you know, perhaps as a, a visitor to Grand Canyon, that you recommend to other folks out there. Spending thirty minutes under the sky after it had snowed for the whole previous day, and looking up at the stars, and humbling yourself that well, what a tiny. Uh, Tiny is also a very big word for my existence below that sky. So that was very inspiring and very humbling both together. 
was there a special location in the canyon that you saw this from or is there a- uh, yes i was on the south rim and okay. more on the eastern side of the south rim got it so we we probably have need a lot of data and ai prediction to make that weather work for us <laughs> to i was very lucky yes <laughs> absolutely you can't have a bright day with a bright uh, sorry with an open sky and uh with uh, snow falling the previous day happen too often so yeah i, was, I turned out very very lucky it's awesome now second question tell us about a book that's really changed you in the last one year kind of changed the way you think perhaps some kind of brought up some up paradigm shift oh uh there are tons of them uh, and if you may allow me i'll talk of two books there is one book that has given me a lot of thought process in the last 3 4 years and the name of the book is exponential organizations okay a wonderful book uh, i would definitely recommend anybody to read that book as to how organizations can go like through 10x growth and stuff like that but then there is a deeper book that has kept on contributing to me my life my profession continuously for the last 30 plus years is a book called bhagavad gita quite often it is inappropriately incorrectly referred to as a hindu scripture uh, the book does not have a word hindu in it anywhere right it is as much a hindu scripture as physics is a christian scripture i put it that way right. you know? so for some reason it got labeled that way but if anybody reads it and there is a in fact mahatma gandhi used to say that if you have a question in your mind if you have trust just open the book and any page you land the verses on that page will have answers for your question i haven't gone to that level of maturity yet <laughs> long distance travel yeah. but reading it regularly definitely helps me get a lot more insights into myself the world around me how i am at, again the same tiny little spot in this universe you know, so yeah and, and it's you know those bhagavad gita you you definitely it's one of those books you kind of have to meditate on what you read like even if you re- read one passage it's not like oh you just read it and then you know it's one of those books you kind of absorb and uh meditate so yeah thanks for the recommendation the final question your favorite cuisine perhaps your recommendation for a restaurant that you love going to this is surprise you my favorite cuisine are many so i don't have one but the restaurant and and the best food i have had i'm i'm a vegetarian and i have had some of the best chinese traditional vegetarian food in guangzhou and xian okay recommended places walk into any monastery in these two places in these two cities guangzhou and xian uh, those buddhist monasteries have phenomenal cafes or restaurants they serve wonderful chinese vegetarian traditional food it's kind of surprising i you know this is news to me cuz i've always thought about chinese as more kind of you know meat and uh, chicken and all these different kinds of you know not so vegetarian options right so it's interesting you say that like what are those uh, vegetarian options what what do they have like i'm sure there's rice but i'm curious what other well that, that's very interesting so i, I and that precisely your your point is spot on and that precisely the reason i shared this with you because normally i mean many people that i have talked to so far i said oh right. really vegetarian in china how did you get that and i said look actually there's some really phenomenal restaurants there and by the not just monasteries there are some good 
only vegetarian restaurants in Guangzhou and Xi'an as well. They don't wow. serve non-veg, huh. right? Now, also interestingly, most of those dishes do not have rice. No right? way. Okay. Yeah, so they're la- largely made out of different vegetables. Okay. Uh, they use a lot of green leafy vegetables. They use a lot of eggplants. Okay. Uh, of course, a lot of tofu as well. And of course, there's some, I'm not saying there's no rice, but it is not as heavily kind of rice-based as we would think. Yeah. There's, they also have some phenomenal recipes made out of green tea, for instance. Hmm. So those are the kinds of different recipes and, and they're just lovely. Caden, I completely enjoyed this uh, conversation. This is probably one of my best podcasts, I should say. So I'm looking forward to having more of these conversations with you in the future. But uh, thanks for uh, being on the Get In The Mode podcast. Well, so did I. Thank you for asking such great questions. As I said, usually the quality of answers is determined by the quality of questions, I would say, right? So thank you for being a fantastic host. Thanks for getting me here. Uh, appreciate it and loved uh, talking to you. Thanks, David. Thanks, David.